My name is Luke. I'm uh, one, of the, one of the leaders, one of the ministers here at the church, and we're really glad to have you, the, the regulars, but also a lot of visitors, especially uh, here for the, the baby dedication today. Thank you for coming. Um, it's our honor that you're here. I, I realize that with a story that we just read, that might strike you, as some of you as 21st century people, as quite, um, I don't know, fantastic, like as in fantasy, um, quite strange to 21st century modern ears, isn't it? I even had one of my friends tell me, ask me one time, do you Christians really believe that stuff? It's a fair question. I, I've never seen anyone call many storms, so that, that you know, I, this is not something I would just see on you know, a regular basis, I don't, I don't think. But what I often tell them is, th- is this. Um, Christianity basically runs on, right, on the fundamental belief that there is a God, that there's one God. And that that God became man. And then that belief is then corroborated right in history, we believe, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who claims to be that God-man. And so I tell them, if you can swallow that pill, this, this is hardly anything, isn't it? Um, but, but that, so, so we're going to tell this story today as if it's true, because we, we believe it's true. And we believe if something like the resurrection, and if there is truly a God in the world who controls everything, then, then certainly... If Jesus is that God, then this is, this is nothing to him. Well, I want to tell you an old story about a Jewish prophet. This fellow, let, let's call him Jay. Here, let me get on the right. Let's call him Jay, was on a, on, on a bit of a journey, so he hitched a ride on a boat uh, piloted by some very experienced seamen. Well, they make their journey across the sea, and, uh, and then a terrible storm develops while they're on their boat ride. In fact, it was so bad that, that these, these seamen, these experienced seamen, b- believed for sure they, they were on the verge of shipwreck. And so when the, the sailors had nearly lost all hope, they go down below deck to plead with this Jewish prophet to, to see if maybe he can invoke his God in, in, order, to, in order to calm the sea and, and save them. But when they go down to see him, they're shocked to find him asleep. They immediately woke him and shout, how, why are you sleeping? Can't, do you know that we're about to die? We're about to perish. Well, this prophet comes to the surface of the deck, and he does something spectacular in order to calm the sea and rescue the sailors. By, by, by his act, he saves the, the sailors from utter ruin. Of course, I'm, I'm talking about the story of Jonah, the Old Testament prophet. D- does it sound familiar to you? It's eerily similar to the story that we just read about Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. In both stories, the pagan sailors in the book of Jonah and and the disciples of Jesus in Mark encounter something that they never thought they would encounter. And because of what they encountered, they're radically changed. In Jonah, the, the pagan sailors immediately begin to worship the God of Israel. In Mark, the disciples of Jesus are frozen in awe, and they say, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obeys his word? Have you ever experienced something so shocking or so stunning that it actually changed you? We believe, uh, we're looking at at the book of Mark uh, and looking at the life of Jesus because we believe here that encountering Jesus will change you. And so this evening, we are going to encounter Jesus 
in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. To give you a little roadmap, what we're going to do is I'm going to just walk through, kind of explore the story, and then we're going to look at three things we can learn from the story. So this story is broken up into two basic scenes. And in the first scene, the disciples encounter a terrifying storm, verses 35 to 38. Jesus' popularity is growing exponentially at this point. Mark chapter 3 notes that Jesus is teaching on the seashore, and, and, and crowds are gathering to him from Galilee, from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Idumea, from, from even beyond the Jordan. And, and the crowds are getting so big that, that he has to leave, he's teaching on the seashore, and he has to leave the seashore and go up onto a boat that's docked in order so he, that he can see everyone and, and be heard appropriately. But it's been a long day of teaching for Jesus, and, and he, he is human, correct? So he gets tired. He's a bit exhausted. So as the evening approaches, he, he, he tells his disciples, listen, I'm done. I'm tired. Let's go to the other side of the sea. Let's go to that region of, of the Gerasenes, which is about a five-mile boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. Now, now it's interesting, just as an aside, it, it's interesting. Mark gives us some detail here at the beginning of the story that, that none of the other gospel writers, they tell the same story, give us. In fact, Mark gives us seemingly extraneous details. For instance, Mark says in verse 37 that the disciples took Jesus just, quote, just as he was, meaning, meaning just right there in the boat. He didn't get out of the boat. And, and, and likewise, in verse 37, they, they say that there were other boats with Jesus. Verse 38 notes that Jesus was asleep on a specific kind of cushion. Now, I bring up those little bits of information precisely because they're not extraordinary. This is what historians of antiquity, uh, of ancient times, uh, suggest reveals the authenticity of a story. Why? Because when ancient people made up legendary or or fantasy stories, they didn't include random details. They tell all the bits of the story that you need to tell to make the story make sense. But, but, but what historians have found is that when someone is, is telling an eyewitness account of a story, it's almost inevitable that random little details will find their way in this story. This is probably what happened here with, with Mark. We know that Mark is likely recording the preaching of Peter the, and, and the eyewitness account of Peter, one of those men who was on the Galilean boat that day. So, so these insignificant details have the scent of authenticity. Well, back to the story. They're on this five-mile boat journey across the Sea of Galilee. M- mind you, it's not a large boat. This is the boat that was recovered. This is a first-century boat out of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's remodeled, but first-century boat out of the Sea of Galilee that's been recently recovered. It's a, it's a fishing boat from Galilee, and you can see here, this wasn't meant for large voyages. This isn't meant for bad weather, is it? It can only hold about 10 to 15 people. So, so Jesus goes down into the stern of the boat, and, and he, he has a bit of a snooze because it's, it's late, and he's exhausted. But you do have these at least four of the men that are on that boat that are experienced fishermen and experienced seamen. These guys would have experienced all kinds of, every kind of boating hazard imaginable. They would have have been in every kind of bad weather condition imaginable. But traversing the Sea of Galilee is, is no walk in the park, even today. 
you see, because the Sea of Galilee, you, you see it right there, it is like a, a basin cut out in the middle of, it's just like a big basin. In fact, the surface of the Sea of Galilee lies 700 feet below sea level, and then surrounding the Sea of Galilee on all sides are, are these mountain ranges. And then on the northeast side of the mountain ranges, Mount Hermon, you see it's the snow-capped one there in, in the screen that you can see. And that reaches 9,000 feet above sea level. So what you have happening is you have the cold air coming down from the mountain. And then the hot air rising from the sea, and it, it creates these terrible windstorms. Even to this very day, even, even today, Galilean fishermen refer to these periodic evening storms as sharkia, means the shark. Well, the disciples have set sail. And one of these severe windstorms develops quickly. The waves grow so large that they're overtaking the boat, and now this small fishing boat begins to take on water, and it's taking it on fast. Now, I don't think these are the kind of sailors that, uh, experienced sailors, that, that quickly begin to freak out uh, at, in, a, in, a, in a storm. They've been in tight situations before, out at sea. But this one is worse. In fact, it's so bad that they come to the conclusion, we're all going to die. And if there is any hope for us, it's going to take some supernatural intervention. I love how Mark gives us a little bit of a insight into the the kind of thought process, the emotional state of the of the disciples at this point. You get the sense they're thinking, what in the world is Jesus doing down there asleep? You know, first of all, how is he sleeping through this? But but more importantly, doesn't he care about us? I mean you can imagine they're thinking, we've seen him heal the lame, heal the sick, bring in the outsider, and here we are, his friends, in service of him right now. And our lives are in danger, and he's oblivious. So they wake him up, verse 38, and they rebuke him. Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? I don't take it that that they're going to Jesus, expecting him to do some kind of miraculous thing. That's clearly not the case, because Jesus right afterwards says, you you didn't have any faith. I think, if anything, they're just out of options. And, and, And perhaps they're thinking, you know, he's such a holy man of God, right? He's such a holy man of God. Certainly he has God's ear. And so what what they hoped for him to do was invoke God to calm the storm on on their behalf. Well, in scene one, we see a more terrifying person, but the disciples in scene oh, in scene two, I'm already there encounter a more terrifying, sorry, in scene one, they encounter a a terrifying storm, and of course, in scene two, a more terrifying person. Jesus gets up, having just been rebuked by his own followers. He looks out at the storm, and he speaks. Not first to the disciples, But he rebukes the wind and the sea. Silence! Be still! The wind and the sea obey his voice. The wind dies, the waves settle. It's as if creation is submitting to his word. 
This is just a, also, I was thinking, this is a bit of a humility check for us parents, right? Uh, you, Jesus here is treating the wind and the sea as if they're kind of a, a misbehaving child. You, you'll, if you would walk into my home, you'd often hear me kind of shouting, Hey, be quiet! Be still! And as the chaos ensues, you realize you, I have very limited power and authority in this world. Not, not, so, for, not so for Jesus. After rebuking the sea, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples. And then he, he gently, they rebuke him, he rebukes the sea, and now he gently rebukes them. Why are you afraid? Why don't you have faith? And I think we're usually pretty sympathetic here with the disciples, right? I mean, what do you mean, why are they afraid? That They were just about to die. But Jesus presses deeper, doesn't he? Their fear is rooted in a lack of faith. On the one hand, they, they, they truly don't understand just yet who Jesus actually is. They haven't grasped it. But even more than that, you can hear this from their question. They doubt both his power to save them and his love to save them. In the final verse of this story, Mark, Mark is especially concerned that we know that the disciples are far more terrified of Jesus than they ever were of that storm. In verse 41, the original Greek emphasizes the incredible terror of the disciples in light of what Jesus has just done. Well, before they were afraid for their lives, now they're, they're t- absolutely terrified about the person who is in their presence. And they ask themselves, as the story concludes, an all-important question. This is the question, by the way, that the entire gospel is about. Who is this man? Who is this man? What kind of person has the authority and power to make creation bend at his word? Well, friends, there's only one answer to that. In, in the remaining minutes, I want to explore just three things that we can learn about this story. The first thing we're going uh, to ask is, what can we learn about Jesus from this story? Second thing is, what can we learn about us? And then there's a, a third thing as well. What this story tells about us about Jesus, put, put, put simply... It just tells us he's the Lord. He's the one with power and authority. This week I was doing my weekly training with, with you and our, our intern, and, and our study was on, on the, this topic, who is God? And, and the first thing our theology textbook taught was this. God reveals himself in the Bible as Lord. Now, now that might seem insignificant to you, but it's not. Exodus chapter 3, 15 Moses has this encounter with God, and he says, God, when I go back to the Israelites, who am I going to tell them that you are? And he goes, you need to tell them that I am the Lord, meaning I am the one with absolute power and authority. That's in the Bible when it talks about the lordship of God, that it refers to his power on the one hand and his authority. Power refers to his ability, God's ability to do anything that he pleases, and his authority refers to his right to do anything he pleases. Power is about might, and and authority is about right. 
So all throughout the Old Testament, you encounter God like this. You can see it on the screen here, Psalm 135, verses 6 and 7. The Lord does whatever he ple- what pleases him in heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. There's another psalm that gives a glimpse into God's lordship, what it means for God to be God. And this one is very interesting because it's a psalm that comes from the perspective of Israelite sailors out at sea. Psalm 107, 23 to 30. Some sailors went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They, they saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage, the sailors' courage, melted away. They reeled and they staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. Do you see why the disciples are absolutely terrified when they encounter what Jesus has just done? Because they've read, these are Jewish guys, they've read their Old Testament. And they know that the only person who speaks and creation, sender, and creation surrenders is God the Lord. Jesus doesn't call upon God to calm the sea. That's what the disciples expected him to do. No, he speaks as if he is God. And the storm ceases. The waves cease. And the disciples are appropriately terrified. It's similar to the other miracle story you've probably heard. When Peter sees the true nature of Jesus. And Peter's response is not, come give me a hug, Jesus. It's, stay away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. So You see, Peter gets it. It's not safe for evil to be around the presence of the perfectly powerful and perfectly righteous God. I said this last week, but I'm going I'm to say it again because I think it's something we need to hear. Becoming a follower of Christ is not most fundamentally about believing in the historicity of, of Jesus. It's not less than that. It's, it's not merely feeling warmed and comforted by the teachings of Jesus. It's not believing simply that there is a God and that Jesus is the Son of God. Being a a follower of Christ, being a Christian, is recognizing that Jesus is Lord, the one with absolute power and authority, and then it is submitting to his lordship. It is submitting to his power and authority. The second thing we learn from this story is what it tells us about us. What this story tells us about us. The disciples have seen Jesus do and say some amazing things, haven't they? 
but, but they still don't, they don't get it, do they? The, the problem with the disciples that just continues and continues is they, they still lack understanding and faith. They, they actually rebuke Jesus, their Lord, in the midst of the storm. Don't you care about us? The subtle suggestion, right, behind, behind the rebuke is this. Jesus, you, you must not really love us to let us suffer like this, right? Isn't that what they're saying? Friends, when the heat of life bears down on you, what's your response? When your vision of life, what you're hoping for, doesn't match reality, is your instant reaction, God must not love me, or God must not be very powerful to change this. That's exactly what the disciples are doing here. This story is just a good reminder that that we need right, we need as humans, because we lack understanding and faith, just like the disciples, we need a healthy dose of humility, don't we? Life is hard. Life is often incredibly confusing, right? But don't stand in critique of Jesus when it's hard and confusing. It's, it's good for you and I to, to constantly, daily remind ourselves that, that we're incredibly limited creatures. We don't see everything perfectly, do we? Just like the disciples. We, we don't know how our circumstances are going to play out. We don't know the lesson that God might be teaching us in the trial. Often our first response to trauma is, is usually overreaction. We lack perspective. We quickly lash out at God and others. So, so what wisdom tells us in this story is that we should trust ourselves and our perceptions far less than we do, and we should trust in God and Jesus Christ, his power, his authority, his love, far more than we usually do. Third thing. I want you to see how God, or so, sorry, how Christ here, responds to our condition, our condition of sinfulness and lack of faith and lack of understanding. In Mark's account of this story, Jesus does not, when, when he's rebuked by the disciples, he does not immediately rebuke the disciples, or when he's rebuked by the disciples, he doesn't turn his head and say, tell them off, does he? No, no. The first thing he does is, is, is go up on top of the deck and he saves their lives. Despite the disciples' lack of faith, and their lack of understanding, Jesus still saves them in a time of great need. Friends, that's what we call grace. Grace is God's blessing. It's his salvation given to people, offered to people who don't deserve it. Jesus doesn't say, listen, I'll save you guys as long as you meet these three or four conditions. And it's a good thing he didn't, because we kind of know that the disciples, especially with their track record through the, through the Gospels, that, that they wouldn't have met any of those conditions if they were offered. Friends, you want to know why grace is, is so important? Because the Bible teaches us that we were so sinful, that sin has affected us so deeply, that we would absolutely fail to meet any conditions offered to us to bring us into God's kingdom or to earn a salvation. We need the, we need, what we need, if we're going to be saved, we need a gift of salvation. 
Friends, friends, there's two things you need to understand about, about grace, okay? What, what, that, that is what Christ, how Christ responds to our condition. The first thing you need to understand is you need to, be able, you need to embrace grace, and then you need to replicate grace. The, the first thing I should say here is that if you are pinning your hopes of Christ accepting you into his kingdom on the base of, basis of anything that you've achieved or accomplished, you have totally missed what Christ offers. Your morality, your success, your religiosity, your church attendance doesn't get you an inch closer to heaven. Trusting in Christ's lordship and his death on your behalf is the only way of salvation. Embrace grace. But for you who have experienced God's grace, let let grace flow out of you. One of the clearest ways that you know that you've experienced the grace of God is if, if, is if the grace of God then flows out of your life. I, I have met people in life who cannot forgive, who, who never extend mercy or grace in their lives. And let me tell you something. They're some of the most miserable people I know. Let me tell you why. Every person in this world falls short of God's perfect standard. And the truth is, we fall short of our own standards as well, don't we? And, and they're, they're far less daunting than God's standard. And, and so, Christian, when you refuse grace to others, you're putting yourself and everyone else on a pedestal that can never be achieved. And the result is is that everyone will let you down. And you will let your own self down. And then you'll make yourself miserable and you'll make everyone around you miserable because you've put them on a pedestal that they can never live up to and that you can never live up to because you'll always fall short of God's standards and you'll always fall short of your own standards. One of my favorite stories in the world is the one that's told in, in the story Les Miserables. Here you go. The main character is Jean Valjean here, so uh, ably played by uh, Hugh Jackman. Jean Valjean is both a criminal and one who has one who has faced the fact that he the darkness inside his soul, okay? And yet Jean Valjean, a criminal and one who has seen how really how deeply sinful he is has been the recipient of extraordinary grace, hasn't he? And as a result of receiving that grace, he goes on to, to commit his life, the rest of his entire life, to, to, being, to showing justice and mercy and grace to, to people who are in great need. Now the villain in this story, on the other side, is a guy named Javert. Javert is the, the police captain the police inspector, who throughout the whole entire story, right, is chasing down Jean Valjean for a story, or sorry, is is chasing down Jean Valjean for a crime that he has committed years and years ago. If Jean Valjean embodies grace, Javert embodies a ruthless commitment to the law. No grace. You You can see how 
how Javert's heart and, and is shaped in the song that he sings in the musical. Mine is the way of the Lord, and those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. And if they fall as Lucifer fell, the flame, the sword. And so it must be, and it is written, on the doorway to paradise, that those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Javert has no category for mercy or for grace. He's the consummate Pharisee, isn't he? Ruthless commitment to the law, no grace, and what it does is it ends up killing him. Later in the story, Jean Valjean has has an opportunity to exact revenge on Javert and, and, and kill him. But what Jean Valjean does is he spares Javert's life. He shows Javert mercy. And Javert cannot cope. He he just cannot cope with the fact that he has been now the recipient of grace. He, the righteous one, would be the recipient of grace from, from this unrighteous Valjean. In fact, Javert is so disgusted with himself when he realizes that he too needs grace, that he decides it would be better to take his own life than to be the recipient of grace. Friends, the gospel is a gift of grace that makes you gracious. Jean Valjean's life was built on the fact that he had received grace, and although he could never pay back his benefactor, he devoted his whole entire life to replicating his benefactor. I began today by noting the remarkable similarities, right, between the story of the Old Testament prophet Jonah and this story about Jesus. But, but I did leave out one major difference, didn't I? You see, Jonah is rebelling against God. He's on the run from God. And, and, and so Jonah, what he does is he calms the raging, storming, raging sea by throwing himself overboard, almost as if he is a sacrifice to God in order to calm the wrath of the seas. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, let me tell you something. Someone greater than Jonah is here. Of course, Jesus is talking about himself, isn't he? Jesus doesn't need to throw himself overboard, does he? Because Jesus can can simply speak and the waves and, and the wind will cease at his voice. But Jesus doesn't stop, doesn't stop there. He, he says there, there's another way in which I'm very similar to Jonah. In fact, similar to him, but even greater. And it's it's this, it's... Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jonah, right, 
because of his own sin. Throws, sacrifices his life, experiences a sort of death and utter darkness in order to save these pagan sailors. But Jesus, not because of his own sin, but because of ours, experiences death, real death, and outer darkness so that we too can be saved from our sin and final death. Let's pray.